There's a study done recently that determined that in America, 90 percent of churches in America, 90 percent are either declining in worship attendance or they're not growing at the rate that their community is growing. Of course, there's lots of discussion in books and blogs and conferences and seminars on what to do about it. But the facts are the facts. The brutal facts that must be confronted is that 90% of churches in America need major changes and major improvement. And even beyond the 90%, just as every Christian can improve, every church can improve. We never arrive. This is a, a, a continual pressing forward into greater Christ-likeness as individuals and as a church, and so we all need to improve. Let's, let's own that as we begin this morning, can we? Can we all agree on that at least, <laughs> that we all need to improve as Christians? I believe this is where Revelation chapters 2 and 3 come in. Revelation 2 and 3, seven letters from the Lord Jesus to seven different churches, representative churches, with the goal in mind that they ultimately Improve that these seven churches go from wherever they are to a greater place of faithfulness and Christ likeness. Seven representative churches evaluated by the one who is intimately acquainted with every Christian and intimately acquainted with every church on the planet. Jesus knows this church inside and out and he knows every church inside and out. And he is the one who addresses the church then. As he addresses them, as he evaluates each and every church, he prescribes, like the great physician of the soul that he is, the medicine that that church needs. He prescribes exactly what each one needs to improve. And because they're representative in nature, because he is prescribing for seven different churches, the composite means he is prescribing for the whole church, of all time, what the church needs. You are here somewhere in these seven churches, and so am I. You are represented. You are identified and spoken to directly in these seven churches. Describe to a T. In fact, as we pull up a slide now of a recap of where we've been in Revelation, we've gone through all seven by now. There's been eight messages because the first one got two. But we've covered all seven of the churches. And I want to just show you by this slide how representative they really are. So we might want to cut some lights up here. It's kind of dim. Is that it'll come up? All right, that's good. So just take a look at that slide. and Let's think through this for a moment just by way of review and recap. We started with the church at Ephesus, the largest, most influential of the seven. And they all go along geographically on a postal route if you're new with us. There's a geographical order to the seven. But Ephesus, their problem, their issue, even though they were persevering and they were toiling and they were working hard and they were, you know, grinding it out as Billy Jean prayed in his prayer, they had left their first love, left their first love of Christ. We move on to Smyrna and we find a church that's very much faithful, being persecuted, suffering, but they were fearful. Pergamum was a church 
beset with doctrinal compromise. The Balaamites and the Nicolaitans had infected this church with doctrinal compromise. Biblical, theological, watering down of the gospel. Thyatira had the same, but they took it really a step further with moral compromise. Thyatira is where they had the prophetess Jezebel who had infected that church with moral compromise, leading people into sin and and calling it okay under the grace of God. We move on to Sardis and they were the sleeping church. Sardis, the lethargic church that needs to wake up. Sardis, that's essentially living in the past of their Christianity and not living in the present and the future. Philadelphia, faithful church. A church looking to the promises of God. A church that is only commended. A church that is, the letter is loaded with promises based on really the return of Christ. And so in Philadelphia, you had a a people who were not living in the past like Sardis. They were living in the present with their eye to the future. Anticipating the open door into the kingdom of God. Anticipating the return of Christ and the rescue from the great test that was about to come on the whole world. And then finally, to be representative, you must encounter lost people in the church. And so Laodicea is last on the list. And we saw there last week a church that really essentially, as an entire church, needed to come to Christ. A church that needed to repent and truly become Christians. Be saved. Be born again. They were religious. They were in church. They were occupying pews. They maybe had a sense of a knowledge of Jesus and the gospel, but they had not put their faith in Christ. They did not have a personal relationship with Christ. And so Jesus calls essentially an entire church to repent and come to him. I'll remind you that all of these are on our website for either your review, uh, both visually and audibly with the live stream technology, or you can get the podcast and listen to it. And here's your first challenge in this sermon, a sermon with many challenges. Here's your first. I want you to look at that list and I want you to ask yourself which one of those fits me most. Which one of those hits home the most with me personally. Today's all about you, the individual, all right? We're going to kind of take our eyes off the church church corporate and we're going to focus in on us as individuals. And so I want you to look at that list and here's your challenge. I want you to go back to our website this week and I want you to listen or watch and listen the one that hits home most for you. Will you do that this week? Will you commit to do that? Have you left your first love? Are you fearful? Doctrinal compromise? Moral compromise? You need to, be, you need to wake up. You need to be, continue being faithful. Or maybe you need to come to Christ. So which one of those rings your bell the most? Go listen to it again this week. Or maybe for the first time. They're all out there for you to look at. This morning what I want to do is begin with you using these seven churches. A series of diagnostic questions for your personal diagnosis of your soul. Today is self-audit. Today is a day of I want to evaluate and examine myself before the Lord in light of the truths from these seven churches. And so I'm going to take each church and I'm going to repackage it in the form of a question We begin with Ephesus. We can take the slide down. Good. It's gone. All right. (laughs) Here is your first diagnostic question. Ask yourself this. Do I love 
Jesus? Do I love Jesus? Follow along with me in chapter 2 of Revelation, verses 2 through 5. I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they are not and you found them to be false. And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first or else I'm coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Do I love Jesus? What does it look like to lose your first love? What does it look like to lose our first love as Christians for Christ himself? What kinds of things begin to happen in our life when this happens? Well, there's a lot of ways we could answer that. If you've experienced it, you, you know the answers. You know, prayer becomes perfunctory and boring. Coming to church feels like duty instead of something that's exciting. The singing of worship songs becomes uh, rote and, and mindless and, and even heartless. Um, you, you find yourself not in the Bible like you used to be. You find that you're not sharing your faith like you once did with others. Your zeal to serve the people of God in the local church is waning Maybe disappearing. What does it look like to lose your first love for Christ? You, you, don't, you don't have those same feelings. Let's just talk about it. Emotions. Those same feelings that arise from deep in your heart. When you hear sermons. When you sing songs. When you read the Bible. When you pray. When you think about Christ. You, you haven't shed a tear in a long time over your own personal sin. You haven't shed a tear in a long time over the lost condition of a friend, a family member, a neighbor. You're seeing people who are lost in miserable sin and, and on their way to hell. And, and it just doesn't move you like it should, like it once did. Maybe you haven't fasted like you once did as a new Christian. Maybe you don't uh, serve other people like you once did. Bible studies, church... Fellowship, all of these kinds of things begin to lose their luster. And what takes its place are usually good things, not overt evil. And so we begin to kind of become distracted. Where we're doing a lot of maybe good things or okay things, but they're not the best things. And our priorities begin to get out of whack. And all of a sudden there's this that's more important and that that's more interesting. And, and, and before we know it, we are the church at Ephesus, a church of cold orthodoxy. We're toiling, we're persevering, we're doing all the right things on the outside. Uh, we're, we're enduring for his namesake. We still believe in Christ, obviously. But, but there's something wrong on the inside. The heart's not in it. The heart's just not in it. This is what it looks like to lose your first love. Jesus says the solution here is to remember, to repent, and to restart. The three R's. <laughs> Imagine that. The solution is to get back to the basics. To get back to the fundamentals. The three R's. Remember from where you have fallen. Repent. Change your mind. And restart in your Christian life. 
this letter is a call to get back to the basics then. And what are the basics of the Christian, of the Christian life? What does it mean to, to not lose your first love, to engage in the fundamentals? It means to get up every day and die to yourself. That's what it means. If I want to get back to my first love, I've got to get this guy out of the way. Because I am the problem. I am the problem because I want to love myself more than I love Christ. And so I've got to begin each day dying to myself. And deciding, recommitting myself every day to live for God and to live for Christ and to live in light of Christ. Every day I've got to wake up and I've got to say no to sin and yes to God. No to sin and yes to God. No to sin and yes to God. That's what it means to be a Christian. That's how you get back to your first love. Following Christ. Obeying Christ. Loving Christ. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. How do we get back to our first love? Beloved, you've got to begin and end every day of your life with quality prayer. Begin and end with quality prayer. Listen, we want to be with those we love. Prayer is when we are with God, when we are with Christ. We just, you don't have to work this up. You want to be with those you love. In fact, you spend time in the presence of those you love. Not only do you spend time with them, when you're not consciously with them, you think about those you love. You think about those you love. Do you think about Christ? This is how you rekindle a love for Christ. You think about Christ. You think about his offices. Christ as prophet, priest, and Messiah King. And you just meditate on those things and you chew on that and you ponder what does it mean that he is my prophet, that he speaks truth into my life through his word. What does it mean that he is priest, a great high priest who has gone before us? There is one God and one and, and, and one man between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And he is our Messiah, the anointed one, the king, the coming king. Meditate on his offices Think about as many names in Scripture. You want to fall in love with someone, you've got to get to know them. And the more you get to know Christ, the more you will love Him. Because He is endless in perfections and beauty and delight and glory. And just think of His names and think of His titles. The Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Son of God, the Son of Man, the first and the last the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Many, many titles in Scripture. Many names for Christ in Scripture. He is the Savior. He is the Risen One. He is the Son of David. We could go on and on. Consider and ponder His nature. Think about the nature of Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man, united mysteriously in one person. Two natures, one person. Always acting consistently with both natures and yet one person. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld His glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father. Consider His nature. Ponder His life, His miracles and His teachings. Consider that He lived 33 years on this planet Every single day obeying God from a full heart of love and trust. Every day doing God's will, speaking God's word, doing the Father's acts. He expounded the Father. He represented the Father. He was the Father in human flesh. 
before the eyes of man. Ponder his death and how he died and what he said as he died. Ponder that he hung on a cross for your sins. Ponder that he took the wrath of God in your place. Ponder the work of Christ that only he could have accomplished. And then consider his resurrection as promised. As promised. Came out of the grave. Conquered death. Conquered the devil. Conquered your sin. Became the forerunner for you and me. As he has been raised, we will be raised. New body for him, new body for us. Glorified for him, glorified for us. Ponder the resurrection of Christ. Every day is Easter for the believer. Every day is Resurrection Sunday for the believer. Think about his ascension before witnesses disappearing up into the heavens in the clouds. Promise that he will come back just as he exited this planet. Think about his ascension that was essential for him to be your great high priest before the throne of God. Think about his ascension that was essential for him to send the Holy Spirit into the world at Pentecost. Thank you for think about his ascension that was essential for him to return again as the coming king. Think about his intercession for you right now. He's praying for you right now. He represents you right now before the throne of God. With those nail-scarred hands, that pierced side, those nail-scarred feet, there in a glorified body forever, representing every single child of God before the throne of God. And ponder his return and rescue for you, for his entire bride, the church. How he loves the church. How he laid down his life for the church. And how he's going to come back for the church and call us out with the blast of a trumpet. We've got to get back to Jesus if we're going to return to our first love. And there's no end to the glories and the beauties and the wonders who is the person and work of Jesus Christ. People have been trying to write about Christ for 2,000 years and still great hymns are being written and still great poems are being written and still great prayers are being prayed. Can we just stop right now and just pray for a moment? Let's pray as a church, pray as individuals. The question is, do I love Jesus? Will you just spend a moment talking to him about that? Asking him for grace, for repentance, to remember from where you have fallen, to repent and to restart. Lord, we preach in your presence and now we pray in your presence. And our hearts want to love you more. We want to have more affection for you, more delight in you. We want to be more consumed with you, more obsessed with you. We trifle, Lord. We play around with so many trinkets and trash and distractions that are so infinitely lower than you. It's just a daily reminder of our unredeemed flesh. We ask your forgiveness. We ask for your grace and your help and your mercy to love you. We do love you, Lord. We love you. Help us to obey you. Help us to demonstrate it. Help us as a church to be known as the church that loves Jesus. We ask it in your name. Amen. Our second diagnostic question this morning is from the church at Smyrna. 
Ask yourself, am I fearful? Am I fearful? Chapter 2, verse 10. Jesus said to the church at Smyrna, do not fear what you're about to suffer. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Literally, it's stop being afraid. Is your life hard right now? Is it difficult? Are there particular challenges and trials that you are facing? I want to remind you this morning that fear and worry will only make it worse. It will only exacerbate the challenge and the trial and the struggle. You and I are told here in no uncertain terms, do not fear. Fear is mutually exclusive from faith. Fear, when we're told not to fear, is a sin. Worry is a sin. What does it mean to do not fear? It means to steal yourself. It means to act like a man. In the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 16. It means to gird up your loins and steel yourself against this fear. By the strength of God, by the power of God, by the means and resources which God supplies. It's like Paul said to Timothy. Timothy, be strong. Be strong in the strength that the Lord supplies. Be strong in the grace of the Lord Jesus. And so there's a place here for us to admonish ourselves and chide ourselves and say, you know what? Toughen up before the Lord. Get off your face. Stand on your feet. Gird up your loins and stop walking in endless fears. God is sovereign over your suffering, not Satan. And God will turn it to good. How do we not fear? We trust that God is sovereign in every detail of my life, that God is orchestrating every detail of my life. And so everything that he permits to touch me is ultimately going to be turned for my good. I do not fear. Instead, I trust God. It's that simple. Do not fear. Trust God. Where the soul is completely relying on God, leaning on God, reposing in God, fear does not have a chance. Fear does not have a place to dwell. Let's think about fear for a moment, because I know we all have them. We all have our fears and worries. At its core, fear anticipates loss. Every fear in your life is somehow anticipating a loss that you are afraid that you're going to experience. A loss like your dreams derailed, your plans dismantled, your reputation Damaged. These are the kinds of things that we fear as human beings. Now, here is the solution. If you have lost your entire life so that you may find it, you have nothing to lose and therefore nothing to fear. We must lose our life that we might find it. If we will remind ourselves of what exactly happened when I became a Christian, (laughs) when I lost my life, therefore I have lost everything to follow Christ, therefore I have nothing to lose, therefore I have nothing to fear. That's the mindset, the proper mindset of a believer. 
Why would I fear? Because I've already lost that I might gain Christ. I've been thinking about death in relationship to Christians. And, and I thought, you know, there's only one reason why a Christian should fear death or would fear death. Only one. You fear losing your life in this world. That's the only possible reason why a Christian should fear death. We're not going to be judged. We're not going to be condemned. We're forgiven. We're saved. We're righteous. Absent from the body. Present with the Lord. So there's no reason to fear judgment, right? That's off the table. So why would a Christian fear death? Because they're going to lose their life in this world. Well, our Savior said this. He said, you must hate your life in this world to be my disciple. I'm not really growing as a disciple if I'm loving my life in this world. Love the Lord, love people, love the lost. But Jesus says you must hate your life in this world to be my disciple. So many of us in evangelical churches in America are worried about America, fearful about crime, fearful about the economy, our government, our politics, terrorism, conspiracies, the national debt. We fear the loss of 1950s American moralism. There's a lot of problems in the 1950s, folks, especially if you were something other than white. We fear the loss of American exceptionalism. We fear the loss of and the death of the American dream. I think the bottom line is too many Christians care more about America than the church. Too many Christians in America care more about America than the gospel getting to billions of people who haven't heard. We're, we're too caught up in the American dream, American exceptionalism, American moralism, patriotism, all these things that are good in their proper place, I suppose. But not to the exclusion of the Great Commission. To the billions who are on the edge of an eternity without Christ who haven't heard the gospel. So ask yourself this diagnostic question. Am I fearful today? Am I fearful? Again, I want to stop and pray right now during the sermon. And I want you to have a chance to pray now about your fears. In fact, I want you to repent in your prayers. Just take a moment to ask forgiveness. And to repent. For the fears that perhaps have plagued plagued your life. Father, help us as a church to repent of fear, fear of man, fear of things we can't control. Help us to humble ourselves before the throne of a sovereign God who has been graciously disposed to us. Forgive us, God, for worrying about money. 
forgive us for worrying about our kids. Forgive us for worrying about our grandkids. Forgive us for worrying about our jobs and our businesses and our homes and our possessions and our life and our health. God, it just goes on and on. Help us, God, to love the Great Commission and the church and the gospel more than we love the American dream. Forgive us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Third diagnostic question comes from the church at Pergamum. I ask it this way. Do I read my Bible every day? Do I read the Bible every day? Turn to chapter 2 and follow along as I read verses 14 and 15 of this church that had doctrinal compromise. Jesus says, I have a few things against you. Because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit acts of immorality. So you also have some who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent, or else I'm coming to you quickly, and I will make war with them, against them with the sword of my mouth. So look at this, three times, teaching, teaching, and teaching. Doctrine is the issue in this church, and whenever you get doctrine wrong, eventually behavior will become wrong. But here the primary focus was doctrinal compromise. And so from that, I ask this question, do I read my Bible every day? That's the question I want you to diagnose yourself with. I have been shocked to learn that uh, there are some, in fact, many in our church who don't read their Bible every day. Not even anything close to that. They watch TV every day. They digest man's news every day. They eat every day. They read something every day. But do you read, do I read, ask yourself, do I read the Bible every day? day. Why wouldn't I read it every day? I do all of these other things, some of which are physically essential, many of which are not essential. Why wouldn't I read my Bible every single day of my life? There is no good answer, is there? There's no good excuse. None. And if we don't read our Bible every day, we become a prime target for false teaching. A prime target for skewed gospels. A prime target for imbalanced, imbalanced theologies. If we don't read our Bible every day, our immune system, our spiritual immune system will become weak. And therefore, we will develop, as Toby likes to say, gospel amnesia. Gospel amnesia will set in if you don't read your Bible every day. Now listen to this. If Paul had to tell Timothy... To remember Jesus Christ. Where does that leave you and me? If Paul had to tell Timothy, Timothy, watch yourself and your doctrine closely. Where does that leave you and me? There was a recent study done and a book was written on this study. It was a study on spiritual maturity. And an entire book was written on it. 
And the author and the researcher discovered a key finding to spiritual maturity in Christians. Here was his finding. The spiritually mature read their Bibles every day. Wow, that's a big eye opener, isn't it? Aren't you just blown away? Aren't you floored? Somebody did research, wrote a book, and decided that the number one ingredient to spiritual maturity is the spiritually mature read their Bible every day. Do you want to be spiritually mature? It's a real question. Do you want to be spiritually mature? Read your Bible every day. And you will be. That's how you get there. There's no other way. There's no other path. Put everything else aside until you've read your Bible. I like to think of it this way. Put aside the crumbs from the tables of others and feast on the Word of God. Too many people are like baby birds eating regurgitated Bible of blogs and devotionals that have already been chewed up and half digested by somebody else. And you're getting their slant and their take and their bent. I mean, let's grow up already and devour the actual text of the Bible. Of the Bible. It's endless. No one in this room will ever master this book. Why do we need the endless blogs and devotionals and crumbs and regurgitated nonsense of so many other people? How do you do this then? How do you read the Bible every day? Well, let me suggest this. Read a chapter of Scripture over and over and over and over and over. Dwell on it. Ask questions of it. Study it. Observe it. What is actually in the text For an example, I've already shown you an example this morning. In these two verses that I read, the word teaching was there three times. That's the key observation, right? That tells us what's going on in this church. Look at the words. Read it out loud. Ponder it. Look for repetition. Look for connections. Look for contrast. Look for important words. Theologically weighty words. Rare words. Observe the text. Observe the text. Observe the text. It is a great joy. It is a great delight. It's like mining for gold. And you have this great, great experience of self-discovery. You're not being spoon-fed by somebody else who did the work and got the joy. And now you're getting the crumbs from somebody else's table. You got a brain. You got the Holy Spirit. You got the Bible. Read the text. Devour the text. These are inspired words of the very living God. They will last forever. Love the word of God like you love Christ himself. He speaks to us through the word. Get a chapter, dwell on it, read it over and over. I want to give you two challenges at this moment. Two challenges. I don't see any reason... I don't see any reason why everyone in this room can't meet these two challenges. Challenge number one for every Christian is we should always be reading the whole Bible. I did not say read the Bible in a year. 
I did not say read the Bible in two years. I don't know what your pace needs to be. What I am saying is you're a Christian. You have the word of God. Every Christian should be always reading the whole Bible. In other words, read through the Bible over and over and over. It doesn't matter how long it takes. Don't ever quit. It doesn't matter how confusing it gets or how, how much you get mired down in Isaiah. Just keep going. And when you finish, start again. And when you finish, start again. And maybe you'll read it once in the rest of your life. And maybe you'll read it 20 times. I don't know. It doesn't matter. Just always read the whole Bible. All right? That's your challenge. That's a challenge I want to give you right here today. Right now today. I want you to take this challenge. I want you to own it. I'm going to start today reading my whole Bible cover to cover. Here's the second challenge. And these are challenges for the rest of your life. These never end. I want to challenge you this morning to master a book of the Bible. I want you to pick one book of the Bible and I want you to master it to the greatest of your ability. You've got 66 to choose from. <laughs> pick a book of the Bible and say, this is going to be my life study. I'm going to own this book. I'm going to know this book. I'm going to read this book backwards and forwards. I may never teach it. I may never share anything from it, but this is going to be my book. I'm adopting today a book of the Bible. That is a challenge I want to lay before you. I'm laying before me. There is going to be a book of the Bible that's going to be my book, and I'm going to master it. Can you do that? Does, that, does either one of those challenges seem too extreme, too hard, too out there, too impossible? I didn't say read three chapters a day. I just said start reading the whole Bible. Your pace may be a chapter a day. Maybe ten. I didn't say master the book of Isaiah. Pick Jude. I don't care. <laughs> Find something that you're drawn toward and say, I'm adopting you as my child. <laughs> and we're going to interact in a deep way for the rest of my life. Wouldn't that be awesome? Wouldn't that be amazing? To just own a book of the Bible as your own. Those are your challenges. Do I love Jesus? Am I fearful? And do I read the Bible every day? Father in heaven, we thank you for the priceless treasure of the inspired word of God. It tells us about Jesus who we can love and adore and obey and serve. Thank you that you're making us into his disciples. God, we thank you that because of the Bible, and because of Jesus, we can live without fear. I pray today that the love of every believer here would increase. Fear would decrease. And the word of God would become more precious than gold and sweeter than honey. We pray today, God, for the person who is here, maybe a child, maybe a visitor, maybe a longtime attender or member, the person here who still doesn't know Christ personally. We're reminded of what you said to Laodicea. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him. And dine with him and he with me. 
Lord, may it be today that someone would open their heart to you by your grace and come into a vital living relationship with Jesus Christ and grow in their love for him. We ask it in his name. Amen.